The theme for this evening's talk is relating wisely or wise relationship. Probably like many of you, um, I've been trying to teach my mother the Dharma for a number of years. (laughs) And I pretty much was under the impression that she really wasn't very interested and she wasn't hearing very much of what I was saying anyhow. So um, I had pretty much let go of thinking that she would uh, learn any of the tools uh, that this practice teaches us. And then last month, when I was on the East Coast in America, I got a call from her. And it was just our usual chat that we have together every week or so. But she told me about an incident that happened earlier that morning. And she's 77 years old, and she lives in a what we call condominium. Um, It's like an apartment complex, but you own your own apartment uh, in Florida. And she's alone now. She's living alone. My father died about a year and a half ago. And in the condominium complex, to go up and down, the, the, there's five floors, you have to take an elevator. And um, she was taking the garbage down to the bottom floor to uh, take the garbage out in the elevator. And when she got down to the bottom floor, the elevator doors didn't open. So she was stuck in this elevator and there aren't very many people around and she pushed the button a few more times and the elevator didn't open and she started to scream and hoping that somebody would hear her and nobody was around and she started kicking the door and screaming and kicking the door. She's 77 years old. (laughs) I mean it was a very frightening situation for her to be kind of stuck in this elevator all by herself. And so she really was panicking. She really got scared. She was screaming and kicking, went on for a few minutes. And then she remembered something that I had taught her. (laughs) She remembered to breathe. She said that, she said, okay, I, Sharda told me that when I get anxious, just to breathe. And so she stopped kicking and she stopped screaming and she started to breathe. And she was breathing and breathing and she calmed herself down. And she actually was able to feel a little bit more relaxed. So when she calmed herself down, she recognized that there was a phone in the elevator. (laughs) A telephone put in the elevators for this very reason. So she called 911, is what you do, called the, the emergency, and she told them that she was locked in an elevator and to, and to have the, the fire department come out and release her from this. And so what she did after she hung up the phone is she just sat down in the elevator and she said she actually felt very calm and very relaxed. And then she was sitting there for a a couple of minutes, and the doors opened. (laughs) They just opened by themselves. You know, I don't know, you know, maybe some kind of time 
um, deferment or something. They just opened, and she walked out. She actually called the police, the fire, fire department back, and told them that they didn't need to come. So I was really delighted. I thought this was really a breakthrough. And <laughs> in that, you know, never really uh, knowing, you know, if somebody is hearing at all what, what, what you're saying to them and really making a difference for her. But I think the story really illustrates um, a question for us. When we are feeling that level of distress and that level of suffering, we might say, where is the problem? What is actually the problem? Is the problem in the conditions that we're experiencing? Or is it the way that we're relating to the conditions? Or it might be what we're bringing to the conditions that are actually occurring. Because in our lives, conditions arise. Events arise. Situations arise. And we kick and we scream. <laughs> we don't like it. We want it to be different. We, we, we get really angry about the way things are. And usually, for the most part, and for most people, we don't know that anything can be any different. We think that the only way to respond is through this reaction. In these moments, we are caught. We are caught by life. This is the problem. The problem is that we're caught by these conditions that have arisen. And we feel like we don't have a choice, like there's no way out. There's no wisdom to relate to the situation we feel stuck. Being caught by life is what all of these teachings are about. Being caught by life is, in the Pali uh, word, it's dukkha. Dukkha. I love that word. <laughs> it has a way of just, it has a resonance to it. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering. And in the, in the text, Dukkha takes on many faces. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Becoming frail, gray, wrinkled, losing our vitality is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow arising from the loss of what and who we love. Sorrow from the misfortunes we encounter. Not getting what we want. And this sorrow intensifies into despair and desperation. The body is dukkha when it's racked with painful and unpleasant feelings. The mind is dukkha when it's filled with painful and unpleasant feelings. I think we can all relate to many of those examples. A lot of times through the day, it's dukkha. And that's what these teachings are about. Everything the Buddha taught is contained in what's called the Four Noble Truths, which is what he realized when he was under the Bodhi tree in India 2,500 years ago. And each of those Four Noble Truths is about dukkha, or suffering. The first Noble Truth is we're asked to understand dukkha. The second is to relinquish the cause 
of dukkha, that which gives rise to the dukkha in our lives. The third noble truth is to realize nirvana, or freedom, which is freedom from dukkha. And the fourth is to cultivate the path to the freedom from dukkha. So it's all about the way or the path to be liberated from suffering. It's what it's all about. There's, there's really, that, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. Liberation or freedom, the teachings of liberation, it's something that our heart is drawn to, not because we arrive at some kind of permanent or exalted state of mind, but because the suffering goes out of life. And that's profound. I mean, that's really a profound reflection to think about that possibility that we could be in this life, in the conditions of our life, and not be impacted by suffering. It's something that I like to reflect on to really imagine that possibility that suffering no longer arises in the mind. That we can be going about our business and our daily daily life just as we are and those suffering elements of the mind no longer are present. Very, very powerful. And this path, the path of the of the the Noble Eightfold Path, or the the path of the Buddha, essentially shows us how to examine the causes and conditions which support the existence of suffering. That's really what it's about. It's asking us to pay attention to that, those causes and conditions which are giving rise to the pain and the dissatisfaction that we feel within ourselves and in our life. And we have to examine these causes and conditions because it's the only way the suffering will end with the ending of these conditions. I mean, my mother's example is a good example because there was a period of time where she was really caught in that pain of her mind. And then in an instant, just in an instant, remembering broke through the fear And she was able to draw on some tools and some resources which were arising out of wisdom that were able to bring her to some calm and to some ease in herself that that broke that suffering in that moment. She could tell through the arising of that wisdom that the panic was not the answer (laughs) for her in that time, being in the elevator, but that actually coming back to her breath and coming back into her her body was the answer arising from wisdom. The understanding about coming to the end of suffering is not cannot be an intellectual understanding. It's not something that we can just keep at the mental level. We can study all the scriptures and be brilliant at spouting, you know, the text and the and quoting the Buddha and all the things that the Buddha said but I don't think it's actually going to do much good. And I've heard about some great scholars in Asia who can spout all these fine points of the Buddhist teachings, 
but I, but I also hear that there's not much application sometimes. They have to be applied. The entire body of teachings of the Buddha is filled with the tools and resources for how to pay attention and what to pay attention to. It's the how to pay attention and what. What we actually examine within our own mind to find out what's giving rise to the pain that we're experiencing. The Buddha did not ask the question, why, really? We don't have to look for why we're suffering. It's a little different flavor. We just look at the conditions themselves, the conditions of greed, of the wanting that I spoke about last night, the conditions of anger or hatred or aversion, that condition of of pushing away or not liking, not wanting, and the delusion that covers us, covers over the mind and, not, and, and it interferes with us being able to see that. And when we actually examine those causes of greed and anger as they arise within our own mind, this is what wakes us up from our delusion. This is what cuts through that delusion or that, that, that um, veil over our consciousness that interferes with us being able to see what we're doing the habits of mind that we're repeating again and again and again that lead us to more dissatisfaction. Most of us are essentially sleepwalking through life. We don't know what we're doing or we don't see what we're doing. We're kind of caught in this repetition of habitual patterns. And that's not bad that we do that. It doesn't mean that we're evil or we're wrong in some way. It just means that we don't see. We don't know. When we don't know, we don't know. And when we know, we know. There's this um, kind of prose poem that I think some of you probably have heard this. I think it exemplifies this uh, very well. It's called The Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And I've heard it myself a number of times, and every time I hear it, I find it very delightful. Chapter One. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter Two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I have a choice. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. Isn't this really the way it is? You know? 
we keep walking down the same street and we fall in. And then we fall in again and we fall in again. And it seems like we have to fall in a number of times before we say, wait a minute, I'm tired of being here. I want to find some way out. And where the practice comes in really is in chapter 3, where, where, where the person walks down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I see it is there, I still fall in, it's a habit, but my eyes are open. I know where I am. I know where I am. That's what it's all about. That's what these practices that we're doing here are about. It doesn't matter that we fall in the hole. It really doesn't matter. It took me a long time to get that one. But it doesn't matter if I fall in the hole. What matters is, are my eyes open? Can I see where I am? Can I know what's happening? Because in the knowing, I have a choice. If there isn't the knowing, I have no choice. I'm just caught in my, ha- my habitual tendencies. This is an important piece to understand because if we understand this piece, it can really bring an end to the, the, the tyranny of judgment and condemnation we have towards ourselves when we do something that we think is stupid or we, uh, we think of ourselves as weak, or um, however it is that we think of ourselves. Because really, mindfulness or awareness is uh, likened to a binary system. We're either on or we're off. We're either on or we're off. When we're on, we're awake, we're there, we're engaged, we know what's happening, and we're off. <laughs> We're lost, we're spaced out, we don't know what's going on, we're confused. And when we're off, there's nothing we can do. Because there is the awareness, there isn't the knowing, there isn't the connection, and we can't really bring in our whole body of tools and resources. So when we're lost, even if it's a moment when we're sitting on the pillow, and we find after 10 minutes or 15 minutes that we're lost in some kind of fantasy, and then in a second we wake up, and then comes all the judgment, oh, you know, I just always space out, and I can't do this practice, and I don't even know why I'm trying. It's like, when we're lost, there's nothing we can do. So that moment of coming back is just a moment of returning, a moment of wakefulness. There's no point of filling that moment with all kinds of judgment because, in fact, we're lost again. (laughs) We're caught again. We're just engaged with that whole tendency, negative tendency of mind. So it's important to know the difference. And in some ways, if there's not much more that really is understood or insight arises, it's really into this really knowing the difference between being awake, being engaged, being connected, being present, and when you're not. And really using those times when we are awake, when we are connected, in a wholesome way, in a skillful way. That's what we're encouraged to do. Most of the suffering that we experience comes about because we're blinded by our habits. 
not because we have some kind of deep evil inside of us, but just because we don't see. That's when the veil is quite thick over consciousness. We just can't see. So the practice of mindfulness that we're doing here, the practice of wakeful attention, is cultivating that ability to be awake more and more. We might call mindfulness, uh, liken it to the inner breaks, our inner breaks, because it allows us to slow down the transition between our thoughts and our actions. In a moment of mindfulness, we can actually reflect on what we're doing, which then can inhibit a continuation of that whole pattern into some kind of action that we later regret, whether it's going for that um, fourth chocolate cookie or um, going for that uh, uh, eighth cigarette in the day or saying the thing that we wish we hadn't said. In that moment of mindfulness, there's a possibility to interrupt that action and reflect for one moment. I mean, it's not even like, it's, it's faster than even an instant, but there's that possibility to reflect and ask ourselves, do I want to walk down that street? Do I want to go there? It gives us the choice, because with choice, we are expressing our wisdom. We are expressing that which we know is true. Maybe in the very next instant, we're caught again, we kind of fall in that hole again. But yet, the wonderful thing is that every moment, every moment we have another chance. Every moment is an opportunity for mindfulness. Every moment is an opportunity for wakefulness. We always get another chance. Amazing, isn't it? (laughs) And that's why we talk about beginning again. Beginning again is like taking the reins of that moment and, and taking charge with our life. We don't have to be controlled by these negative tendencies of our mind of greed and, and anger and delusion. And when we practice this way, this is really what allows for the elasticity of mind It makes the mind pliable so that we don't get so locked into our reactions. We don't get so fixated in our positions. But there's there's kind of freedom. There's a, um, I like that word, elasticity. You know, there's movement, there's freedom in the mind. It's It's not fixed. I had an experience um, a while ago when I was um, sitting a retreat, uh, about a 20-day retreat in Hawaii with uh, Sayada Upandita from Burma. And if if that rings a bell for any of you, um, Sayada Upandita is, is a pretty tough cookie. And anybody who has sat with him probably would say the same. And one of the, one of the um, things we were encouraged, and more than encouraged, um, required <laughs> to do on the retreat, was to sleep for four hours. So that it didn't matter what four hours they were, um, but it was the, re- the suggestion, I should say that, I should be kind, 
the suggestion was 20 hours of practice, four hours of sleep. So I decided that was being suggested for some reason that I would do that. (laughs) And oh, that was hard. That was hard. Because obviously, and probably most people, I felt tired most of the day. I just was really groggy and I was really dull. And there was, was, most of the time, there wasn't a lot of energy uh, to, to really pay attention, to, um, to, to see what was going on. I would have very strong uh, dips of, of tiredness and sleepiness during the day. And then I would notice how much aversion I had to the tiredness because it was interfering with what I had expected could happen on this retreat. And I didn't like myself in that state of mind of being dull and groggy and you know, kind of irritable. You know, when you get tired, you're kind of irritable. That goes along with it. And just having that kind of mind state a lot of the time, uh, uh, it, particularly in the first 10 days of that retreat, And yet, we were really encouraged again and again to work with our relationship to the conditions that were arising. That it wasn't, didn't matter so much what the experience was, what are you bringing to it? Are you bringing anger? Are you bringing desire and greed? Are you bringing more delusion? And so what happened for me was as I worked with my relationship to the tiredness, I actually found out that the tiredness was actually quite sweet. That there was a way that I could start to sort of drop more into the whole physical experience of the tiredness and draw on my breath just to help me stay in a, you know, a kind of a, a subtle wakefulness connection to presence. And this very sweet and, and kind of blissful feeling started coming over me that I was very conscious of and very connected to. And it was just, just through the shifting of that relationship, rather than, than, than feeling all this anger and irritation towards the tiredness, which then became my predominant experience, which was one of anger and irritation, as I started to drop that and started to, to feel into the sleepiness or the tiredness itself, it all shifted. The whole thing completely shifted for me. And then, as, as, as is somewhat expected in asking us to sleep four hours, there was more and more energy that started to come. And, and that energy started to be quite potent. So it was a really, really uh, uh, important experience for me in learning how it's not the conditions that give rise to the uh, the dissatisfaction, but really that attitude of mind that I'm bringing to it. It really became clear for me. So we ask you, and we are asked, to turn towards the experience, to meet the full range of experience just as it is, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, where it's somewhere in between, neutral, which sometimes can give rise to boredom or dullness or spacing out, but to turn towards that. And this turning is turning with wisdom because we're not running away. We're not, um, uh, we're not 
acting out of our own ideas and images about what we think should happen, but we're really willing to stay right there with our experience just as it is. In this way, we can learn and understand what we are doing that adds to our suffering. What are we doing? What are we doing that is actually increasing that dissatisfaction and pain? What are we repeating again and again that we actually can stop if we recognize what it is that we're doing? This turning towards experience in this way is a condition for release, is a condition for freedom in our lives. There was a woman on the last retreat I taught a few weeks ago at the Insight Meditation Society, and she'd been practicing for about eight years. And on this retreat, for the first time, she was seeing a very strong pattern in her mind. And she, was, she described it to me. She said what she saw was that her mind would repeatedly go to look for a future object to worry about. That she would just be sitting and minding her own business, and then some uh, idea, some, something that might happen in the future arose, and then she'd, move, she'd attach onto that and just keep worrying about it, and try to, trying to figure out all kinds of strategies to keep that from happening. And, and she saw that this pattern was keeping her from being present. That she would just get completely wrapped up in that fear and worry about the future uh, situation that one, hasn't happened, (laughs) and two, was made up in her own mind. It had no reality to it. And so in the recognition that this was pulling her out of the present moment, and giving rise to a great deal of panic and agitation, she really felt this sense of urgency to stop that pattern. She said to me, I'm not living my life. I'm not here. You know, I'm, I'm just, I keep getting caught up in this future idea, and I'm not here. And it was really touching. It was very touching because she she saw it so clearly for the first time that it really connected her with that sense of urgency to uh, live her life in a more whole way. And I really felt inspired by her. I felt I really felt that she was going to do it, that she was going to be able to bring her mindfulness to that pattern and cut through it so that she didn't get so caught by it again and again. That strategy of being pulled out of the present moment in this way for her probably was a useful strategy at some time in her life. Maybe, you know, there were certain conditions when she was a child that were very difficult to cope with, and so she had to find some kind of strategy to take her away, you know, so that she didn't have to be present with with the immensity of difficulty. And this happens for many of us. We have to find these um, coping strategies when we're small. And oftentimes, we carry these strategies into our adult life, and we actually don't need them anymore. 
we can put them down. We don't need to protect ourselves in that way. But actually, the habit's so strong, we don't recognize what we're doing. We only feel the pain. We only feel the agitation of being cut off from present reality. And so when we come to meditation practice, there's the possibility to recognize ways that we uh, learned when we were younger, uh, ways to protect ourselves, but we don't need to do it anymore. We can drop it. We can drop it and really be here. Because in an interesting way, not being present is, is a strategy. It's a strategy to avoid what we imagine is too unpleasant to feel. You know, it's very, very clever the way we can create all kinds of worlds within our own mind, all kinds of 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 fantasies, and and we can go back into the past and go into the future, and not be here. And that can be good sometimes because we don't have to feel a lot of the uh, difficulty. That, that we experience in the present moment. And it's possible to just keep going on like that. It's almost like we have an unconscious belief that not feeling and not being here is easier than feeling the truth of the moment. But what might we find out about ourselves when we really come here, when we really land here? I think it's an important question for us to ask ourselves. Is, what is that unconscious belief we have about what it would mean to really come into the present moment? Ajahn Sumedho, the uh, abbot of uh, Amavati, I think the previous abbot, I'm not sure he's in that position right now, Uh, He wrote something about that. He said, The tendency of the modern mind is to think that there's some ogre lurking way down deep inside, just waiting for an unguarded moment to overwhelm you and drive you permanently insane. I remember a few moments like that. Some people actually live their whole lives with that kind of fear. And every time the monster starts to come up, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, there it is. But monsters are just another mind moment. And he uses the analogy, another grain of sand of the Ganges River, just another of the million grains of sand. Maybe an ugly sand grain, but that's all. If you're going to get upset every time you see an ugly sand grain, you're going to find life incredibly, increasingly more difficult. Sometimes we have to accept the fact that some sand grains are ugly. Let them be ugly. Don't be upset. If you saw me sitting beside the Ganges River looking at ugly sand grains saying, I'm going crazy, you'd think, Ajahn Sumedho is crazy. (laughs) Even a really ugly sand grain is just a sand grain. Even an ugly mind moment is just a mind moment. It arises and it passes. It's not really this, this ogre waiting to overwhelm us in any given moment. 
And when we're able to turn our attention that way, we can just see it. Just see it. It's a mind moment with a feeling that arises in the next moment. And we can learn about this as we move into our experiences, as we take a look at our thoughts and our feelings, or our physical sensations, find out what they are, see what they are, so we don't keep trying to avoid. We find strategies for avoiding. Interestingly enough, even meditation practice itself can be an avoidance. We can use this as a way to escape from our humanity, from who we really are. Many people hope for some special experience where they'll feel ecstatic bliss and won't have to be touched by the dukkha, won't have to be touched by the suffering. And I think I talked about this in another talk where where this particular meditation that we're practicing here is about coming into our experiences experiences that are happening right in the moment. It's not about cultivating certain kinds of states of mind, because that can so easily bypass being a human, being a human being that we are. Mark Epstein, who is a psychiatrist in America, he wrote the book Thoughts Without a Thinker. He's been a practitioner uh, in this tradition for number of years, 20 years or so. And he said, uh, he wrote that there's a popular misconception about what it means to be selfless, selflessness, when we really let go, let go of this fixated sense of ourself. Um, He said that the popular misconception is emotions dissolving into ecstatic union a trance state with loss of ego boundaries or a numb state in which nothing need to be felt. You know? Where we don't we get into some kind of state where we don't have to feel anything. And he points out that people hope that engaging in methods of stress reduction, which is really popular right now, will dissolve tensions into a pool of blissful feelings that make them at one with the universe. You know? There's this hope that something's going to do it. That something's going to take us away from this configuration that is usually quite difficult <laughs> once and for all. And somehow, somehow that we can almost annihilate ourselves through these methods, through the techniques, through the teachings. But we don't have to annihilate ourselves and what's going on inside. We really just need to learn how to experience the conditions of our mind, of our body, and the conditions around us, outside of us, in a new way. We don't have to be reactive to the conditions of life to try to get rid of them. Rather, we learn how to change our relationship to them. We learn how to change the relationship. That's what we're trying to do here. And through the practice of loving attention to all that arises in our mind and body, 
we can see there's the possibility of seeing everything that arises as the changing landscape of our mind. We don't have to be so identified with it all. Thoughts come and go, feelings come and go, sensations in the body come and go. It's always changing. The first thing we need to do is to recognize what's happening. This is the great leap of consciousness, is the recognition. It's a huge leap of consciousness to be able to see ourselves, to reflect back on our own mind to see what's happening. Consciousness reflecting back on itself. Huge leap in evolution. And so we use this ability to reflect, to know what's happening. And once we see it, the next step is not to judge it, not to condemn ourselves, but to feel it, to be with it, without this identified involvement, without personalizing it so much. Possibly bringing a a friendly, a kind, even compassionate attitude to, to what we see in ourselves. And then to recognize it's just the passing show. Just the passing show. This is the way we make friends with all that arises in our experience, even when we don't like it. This is from the great poet Rumi, from his book, The Poems of Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And the guide from beyond is leading us to freedom. Freedom from this identified involvement that brings us the pain and the suffering when we're not able to see it as the passing show. You may find, as these days go on, that Catherine and I are not going to be so interested in your experiences. We're not going to be even that interested in your particular story at times. Sometimes the story is important. But generally, what's more interesting is how you are able to be with your experience, how you're able to be with your particular story that's arising at any given time. What attitude you're bringing to your experience. Are you able to bring a tenderness, a kindness, an open heart, an attitude of generosity towards what you see in yourself, a thoughtfulness? 
even when it's difficult, even when you're really, really angry or irritable or depressed or tired or sick, can you even bring that kindness in those moments? These are the conditions of mind and heart that will lead us to a liberated life, a life that is free from dukkha. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.